Hello and welcome to the Soccer Coach Weekly Podcast. I am Andrew Rayburn. Thank you for joining us as we get insights and ideas from coaches working across the game to help you develop into the coach you want to be. In this episode, we speak to John Cottrell-Bolsover. As you'll hear shortly, he has fulfilled a variety of roles, including goalkeeper coach and a club chairman in the men's game and head of performance for both uh, Chesterfield FC women and the Chagos Islands men's representative team who play their matches in exile in England. He has recently launched his own consultancy, World at Her Feet, which works with female players in areas such as strength and conditioning and sports science. John's main background is, in fact, in sports psychology and also in performance analysis. And it's those areas we focus on in this podcast. I spoke to him to explore the often misunderstood realm of emotional intelligence and why empathy is so important in coaching. But I started by asking him how he feels he gets the best out of the players he works with. I kind of consider myself a, a people person. I've always prided myself in the way that I work with players, um, which is uh, very positive, um, very directful, and very very factful, if you like. I, I work with data because it gives it gives me a good indication of where people are and helps people understand where they are a little bit better. Now, data is data. It's just that. It's just numbers. Uh, and it can't account for everything. However, um, when I like to work, or take a mix, really, of those fact-based sciences, such as performance analysis and match coding, GPS and things like that, and combine that with a very good management approach. And I feel it's been a recipe for success for me personally. It may not be the same for everybody, but that's kind of how I've worked. I've kind of got the information to back things up whilst at the same time knowing how to work with people. And there's... Uh... An element, I guess, with players where once they see certain numbers, it's irrefutable, isn't it? But there is still that kind of feeling side of it. So if a player sees some positive numbers but still don't quite feel that they are in the right zone themselves, how do you balance the two? Do you see what I mean? So it's very, very important to remember, as I've just said, that stats are stats and stats aren't everything. Um, everything that I use in my coaching or when I work with teams, they're just tools in a toolbox. The toolbox is very big and it has many things within it. Um, for instance, if I, if I use GPS analysis as a, an, exe- an, exe- an example, you, you could run the best GPS rates, the fastest sprints, the fastest accelerations, the highest work rate, but, if the, but you might not touch the ball the whole game. So it tells you nothing in that sense. But at the same time, you may have the lowest GPS rates on a team because you might just be stood about, but then you might you might get the ball four times and put it in the net. And so it doesn't, GPS stats, for instance, never talk about talent or performance and performance doesn't re- represent your GPS stats. So we must put context behind everything. So we, it, it's very important to, when you work on the personal level, is to understand what the data is that you're using and what the data is going to be used for. And two, it asks questions and you can then search for solutions, if that makes sense. So a good example would be looking at a GPS stat of acceleration. So how fast is my acceleration? Um, it may not have anything to do with your performance on the pitch, but it's an area that we can work with that may enhance your performance just to give you that edge. So we may put some strength and conditioning in place to help your acceleration and test that on that type of thing. So it should never create the bigger picture. 
that the small elements make up the bigger picture when combined together. Are coaches in particular, do you find them, particularly in this day and age, more uh, open to all these sort of, uh, you know, the number crunching and, 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 and analysing from that? Are there still coaches who prefer to sort of use their eye on, you know, on things, uh, you know, and how do you persuade them that the data needs to be incorporated, even if it is just painting a, a picture, uh, you know, it's, it's a part of that puzzle. How do you sort of persuade those coaches? Yeah. So and again, I would say in answer to that question, every single coach you work with is different. So there are some that say, absolutely not. I'm not into this modern science fads. It's not, it's <laughs> not for me. And you know what? That's fine. People have to make decisions based on what their own philosophies are. Some can look into it too much and base everything on the science doesn't really work in that sense. You've got to get the balance, but I would say more and more, more people are open to it but i've got a very specific job within all that and my my job is to ensure that the information that i give is is relevant to what people want to achieve and it's to to leave everything to one coach or one manager it's a lot to take in so so i have to work as a consultant with, with all my teams and and give them the right information which they can then choose to accept or not accept. Uh, and it's the same with players. A lot of the players I work with, I'll never say this is what you need to do. I will I will say this, in my opinion, is something you should work on or, or you want to mark, let's have a look at this. The player themselves must choose to accept that information or not. There's no right or wrong answers, but it's up to the people that you work with to take on board. You can provide them with the best information that you have to hand that they must they must choose whether to move forward with that or not. And is there an element of your role which is, you know, teaching coaches how to do it themselves? If you like, I know that might put you out of a about put you out of a job, here, no. but but is it is it about not so much spreading the gospel, but is it about getting people to understand what they should be doing with these numbers and how they they work on, at the, in their clubs? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that is the biggest part of of what I do. Um, Like I said, I'm a consultant more than a sports scientist or an analyst or whatever. Uh, It's educating coaches and managers particularly as to what it is, how this can help and what they need to look at. Because they could rely on, on people like me all day long, but if my opinion is different or the information I'm given isn't helping, you, you, you've got to have a, a wider team buying to, to that type of thing. And, and it's not just the managers and coaches, it's the players themselves as well. It, it's the, the, the education element of that is absolutely essential. I would say the most important part of what I do is, is teaching people what these things mean, how to integrate things and, and how to understand it and use it or not use it. And we touched upon, or you touched upon in the, your intro there about yourself, um, about being a people person. Yeah. Can you learn how to be a people person if you don't already have that empathetic touch? I would say that there's no right or wrong answer to that. There's no yes or no, if that makes sense. I think when we start to, we start to talk about what we would call emotional intelligence, and, and everybody possesses a various, various degrees of emotional intelligence. Now, lots of studies on emotional intelligence and some people have a, a higher EQ than others. Now, does that make you a better people person? 
I don't know. It, it, that's very difficult. It works for me. But there's also flaws in that as well. So can you learn to be a people person? Now, the, the scientific evidence would, would argue probably not. Uh, you tend to have, have built your executive functions, as we would call it, uh, by the time you're 12 years old, 11 and 12 years old. And it's not so much learning to be a people person. It's learning to adapt to your environment. And that would be a better way of thinking about it, because you may not ever be a people person, whatever that term means. Um, but you can learn to adapt to your environment. Uh, and, and a good way to think about that is is breaking an arm if you uh, i'm right-handed if i break my right arm it's i can't learn to be left-handed but i can learn to adapt to the situation and learn to write with my left hand it will be different but i'm learning to adapt to my environment which is which is the essential thing so as a direct sense no probably not you can't learn to be a people person but you can learn to work with the environments in which you're presented and what also struck me was when you said about you know you're, you're quite honest with with people and with players and I think sometimes that can be lacking in certain areas. Sometimes coaches can be a bit reticent as to, you know, why they might be leaving a player out on on Saturday or Sunday or whatever. Um, so are there areas of, of coaching where coaches need to be more honest? And actually, are there somewhere sometimes where you need to, I know not less honest, but you know what I mean, where you might need to be a bit more diplomatic, a bit more in touch with the person that you're dealing with? So I would say that, that knowing the people that you're dealing with is, is, is absolutely essential. So you say, it, do, do I have to be more direct with the player? It depends on the player. Um, some, I, I have a very honest policy, but it's the way that I present that honesty sometimes to each individual player. And some people want pure honesty. Some people, it, it could destroy them. And, uh, and that's, that's not the right thing to do. Um, there's also an element of empathy that starts to creep in here. And um, you, you will tend to find that, that people who are highly emotionally intelligent, for want of a better measure, also have high levels of empathy. And that can be quite, quite devastating to some people. Uh, if, if you have a player that's been at, that gives their absolute all, they've been at the, a club for 10 years and and they put their all into a session, but they're, they're perhaps playing at a level or you're playing at a level that, that they're under, and it does happen, then having a conversation to say you're not good enough, it can be, wow, I mean, what a conversation that is to somebody who's been who's lived and loved your club. So each individual is different, but there's many factors that come into this, and it, it's very hard to be black and white with, with such matters. So I, I would say knowing your players and to a certain extent as well, being honest with yourself. And uh, I've often found that recruiting in advance or having a, an idea of recruitment needs based on a long-term pathway. If, if I know that I want to, um, to like at, at the moment I'm working with Chesterfield FC Women, which I absolutely love the club. I think we have a fantastic management team, fantastic coaching team there. But we have to plan years in advance because we, we move through the pyramid very, very quickly. Things change at our club very, very quickly. And so we have to plan in advance that actually, if we're here in three years' time, what does that look like for us, and what does it look like for where we are now, and what needs to change? Um, and and part of that process, particularly with this club, was revamping our youth system. Uh, our youth system was targeted towards where the team was at that moment in time, and when the team moved forward, the youth system didn't move forward with it. 
So we've had to refocus that and continually evolve that in order to think where we're going to be in four years' time. Where does this 13-year-old player fit to where we want to be by the time they're 18? And, and so, we, so you have to adjust that. So, so knowing yourself on that front as well is, is really, really important and having those long-term plans. And I think that, that that almost covers off my next question. But I was going to say that um, obviously we, we most of our um, readers and listeners will be involved in you know the grassroots game or in you know semi professional environments. But I was interested to read a, a quote from from Graham Potter, obviously the the, the Brighton Hove Albion manager, um, someone who's I think well renowned for his kind of um, the way he deals with with individuals. He said, you know, you need to have emotional intelligence to be a, a top manager. You know, he talked about the qualities you need to be a good coach, you know, self-awareness, empathy, you mentioned, you know, responsibility, motivation, building relationships. Um, I, you know, I imagine you'd subscribe to all of that, wouldn't you? No, absolutely. I think um, it, it's the modern manager now is, is an emotionally intelligent person, if that makes sense. Um but also the players as well. We, there, there are studies now that suggest that players with a higher emotional intelligence are more likely to be successful in the game. And again, what is emotional intelligence? It's, it's adapting to your environment, like we've just said. It's understanding where things change. You can pick up on that and adapt yourself almost immediately. Um, it's, and, and being able to kind of communicate effectively with players based on on, on different areas. Um, and so it, it's um, it is really key to, to to managers and players alike. What I'm finding now is that I the, the, the most successful transitions if you like are creating um, kind of the the environments where everybody has the same mindset. Uh, and a good example of that is, I mean, you talk about Brighton, but a good example of that is um, the, the England team and the way that um, Gareth Southgate has, has kind of changed his philosophy and things like that. So um, it, it's, and, and the success that that's brought, uh, it's something that you see at Rotherham United as well. And the way that Paul Warren at Rotherham United has adapted those same environments. Um, it's it's absolutely, it's been that, it's brought success and it's brought buy-in it doesn't work for everybody, but you have to have the players that, that buy into that as well. And that's interesting because the three examples you've given there, I mean, I obviously gave Graham Potter, but, you know, Gareth Southgate and Paul Warren are, relatively speaking, fresh out of dressing rooms themselves as players. So is that, that's not a coincidence, is it? That That's players who are understanding the modern world, understanding the modern dressing room and understanding the you know creating a, a relationship with players who actually aren't like the old school managers aren't 30 40 years their junior they are much more in touch with what those players need it's a very strange time that we live in isn't it because where i kind of i was brought up i was at secondary school in the days of the start of the premier league <clears throat> excuse me and start of the premier league so uh, I remember the old hairdryer from from alex ferguson and those commanding figures that kind of walk in uh, and they are, um, they, they, they give the, the treatment. And that kind of still, is still reminiscent today that, that I often hear quotes such as, um, yeah, like players need to go shouting at half time because uh, it, it helps them perform better. But I think we're in a strange 
time of transition where people understand that actually, yeah, shouting at somebody makes them fearful that they have to perform, but actually working with somebody on an, on an emotional and psychological level enables me to get the best out of them. And, and not because I'm telling them to, but because they're empowered to want to do it. And I think that's the key difference. So it's an exciting era in that sense as well. But we, do, we are starting to see these little things that, and these little success stories that point towards it being the new future. And that's interesting what you say there, actually. It, it's effective of what you're saying is a, a, a longer way of saying, you know, I want to play for that coach. You know, and you want you say so you've got to want those those disparate players because, you know, if you if you recruit on talent alone, you're going to have disparate personalities. And if you try and recruit on the same personalities, you're going to have talent differences. And at youth level, of course, you have to deal with, you know, you just you've got players within an age band and you can't you've got to deal with all sorts of differences in, in, in talent and personality. So bringing that all together can be tough, but you need to deal with each individual to make them want to play for you. And those players will need different psychological, I hate to use the phrase manipulation, but you know what I mean? They'll need different sort of encouragement. Um, We always talk about either needing an arm around the shoulder or or a rollicking, but I imagine for you, someone who's got the, uh, all the qualifications and everything else, that there is nuance there, isn't there? It's not one or the other. No, it's it, it, it all, come, all comes back down to something which is uh, which kind of sits at the heart of my own psychological kind of research, if you like, or my psychological way of thinking, is that we I, I study something called executive functioning, uh, and executive functioning gives me a key idea of the type of player that I'm dealing with, and I, I actually produced um, uh, an executive functioning assessment. Um, that uh, that looked at 12 points of, of, of the executive function of the player um, and makes a general assessment of, of how they will be within that environment. Now, we've known for a very long time that such assessments, um, uh, doing such assessments on five-year-olds can give a very good indication as to educational attainment within schools. So we know that there are other areas of life where knowing what a child is like at four and five, what, how well they will do in school and college and university and that type of thing. And, and what I've tried to do is to transfer that across into football. Um, and it's something that I've done over the last two years now. It's, it is a very strange place. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I work with an under-16s girls team. And, and they're now becoming very, very successful. And, but the success has been behind how quickly they've grown and, and how fast that their talent has been produced. Uh, when I took, just to give you an impression, this is a team that I took over that was second bottom of the second division, uh, under 14s. Now, <clears throat> I'm not too interested in kind of where they were league-wise, but they now sit at the top of Division 1, kind of unbeaten and they're scoring goals for fun and that type of thing. And it, it's not as challenging as it was a year ago. But that's testament to the players that I have with me. All of them enjoy training. All of them enjoy working hard. All of them want to progress. So they are of the same mindset. But then you have the problem that you have, that you talk about, um, which is there's the talent side of things as well. So you do have to get the balance of that and make sure that the people in that environment are the right people to be in that environment. Uh, but... Um, but on that sense, I, I, I've um, I had a very good conversation with a, a gentleman called Sean Hurd 
who's the uh, head of Sheffield United's uh, regional talent centre, the girls' regional talent centre. And one thing he, he said to me, which has always stuck with me, really, he said, um, uh, hard, hard work will always beat talent when talent doesn't work hard. And it's a philosophy that I've found to be true. And, and never has there been such a, a system that, or, or a philosophy, if you like, that, that served me better than that phrase. And um, so, so that's something that, that if you have hardworking players, the talent will emerge. You'll also be aware, though, that some clubs, a lot of clubs, um, in both the male and female game and from professional down to grassroots, because it's human nature, they will have talented players who either don't have the right attitude or they are difficult to, um, you know, get into line, if you like, for want of a better phrase, who do test coaches' patience. Um how far can the empathy stretch and what sort of different approach? Cause you said, Oh, you know, giving the players hair dryer treatment doesn't work. You know, is there room for the sort of, you know, the short, sharp shock treatment to get players focused or with a difficult individual, do you need to take a really subtle line? I think it's how you set yourself out from the beginning. So we, we move, actually, strangely enough here, we move from football into conflict management. So And, and when we talk about conflict management, now, I was uh, in a former life, I used to work as a training consultant working, within, um, working with organisations in, in psychology, mainly. Um, and I used to run conflict management courses. And we used to talk about the type of individual um, that is best for dealing with conflict. And you can have somebody who is very passive who lets people walk all over them and does things to please people we all know somebody we've probably all done it in our lives just done something oh, do you know what it's less hassle i'll just let them get away with it but then we get the opposite side of that which is aggressive so somebody who is very aggressive the the the, the, the hair dry treatment if you like kind of um really being said no you will do as i say you will do as i say but what you tend to get you create passive aggressive people people who will do as you say until they reach a limit then they'll fight back but the best place to be is right in the center of that and it's what we would call assertive so how being an assertive person who yeah this is the way i want things done and this is the way it's going to be however i am not too aggressive to listen to what you've got to say and to see how you react you're not at arm's length it's not all or nothing, I will listen to what you've got to say and I'll have that honest conversation with you. But ultimately, it will come back to the way that I want things to be because that's my responsibility. So, so being that assertive person and setting those assertive boundaries very early on, I, I would say is essential. If you've got that type of player who, who, who you feel needs that short, sharp shock, and we, can name, we could probably name a thousand Premier League footballers couldn't me about or in that position and, and the ways that they dealt with and it's all over the news these days isn't it? very quickly um and but it's those assertive boundaries that need to be set from the first meeting for me and to know where they stand but also i will i'm, I'm not too aggressive to, to listen to what you've got to say as well i'll take your opinion into account the empathy is there but the assertiveness is is, is paramount and there again, I think we, we bring it back to Gareth Southgate, don't we? Because we've seen how um, more open 
the England camp has been, particularly with journalists, and they, you know, they've had their darts matches and whatever at tournaments, and you know the the, the pictures that are carefully managed and released with the players, you know, enjoying themselves and having fun and and everything else. And you know, he's clearly had an impact on on a on a group of young players. Um, but at the same time, we've also seen him take disciplinary action against players who haven't fall into into line so what clearly is there is is a is a set of rules and set disciplines laid down at the beginning um you know and if players fall short of that then they know what to expect um and i think i guess that is the it's expectation management isn't it it's you know what you're getting from that individual you can't from your from your coach you need it from the coaches need it from players but players need it from the coach they need the coach to be consistent throughout but it doesn't mean to say they have to be they can't be on you one minute and and empathetic the next that's still possible but you know to expect that as long as you know what to expect i suppose that's it's when it it's when it's difficult to read that's the problem yeah absolutely and i think that when i say about setting environments from the very beginning here are my expectations from minute one and and there's no excuses for that there's no oh i'll let some players step out of that and some not like everybody is under the same rules however some everybody's different so you work with players on an individual but with that very that very spine if you like of expectations i think expectations is a very good way of phrasing it to be honest um but but no those environments do tend to be the best environments and and also for a player who if we're talking players who may feel a need to um to to be aggressive or, or not pull the weight if that's the way that we're thinking about it then there is some security or guidance within their environment, some predictability. I, I, I know how I can be and I know what's expected and I know the consequences of not doing it and I know the rewards of doing what I should do. And, and the predictability for humans, uh, if, we're, if we're going to the very basics of human psychology, predictability and, and controlling your environment and understanding the environment in which you live, work, whatever, it is absolutely essential. It's the very basics of psychology. And just because we're in an environment such as football or work or school or university, whatever, that doesn't change. And as long as we remember those principles, that that's the environment that the players work within is it has to be it has to have that predictable nature about it. I've got a final couple of questions. Um, you talked about conflict management and resolution and stuff like that it's often spoken in our own workplaces about the fact that you know you don't have to you don't have to like who you work with you know you don't have to get on with them all you know you have to just get on with the task in hand and be professional about things um dressing rooms football dressing rooms locker rooms however you want to phrase it um do people because of you know the nature of sport and the and the and the communal nature of sport do they have to get on with each other and if if not, how do you how do you resolve conflicts in a dressing room? It's it's a very difficult one, this isn't it? Because it, it's something that we hear about all the time. It, how many times have you heard on 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 the news that the dressing room isn't right? The dressing room, there's been a bus up in the dressing room. They've got to get things sorted in the dressing room. What does that mean? What does that look like? It, it's it is a very difficult one for me. I'm very personally very upfront. If there's a problem, I, I, I see it immediately. You don't have to get on. It's very rare. I mean, how many times have you personally been put in a room with 20 people and been expected to get on with all of them? It, it, it's it, it, 
people get together with families and don't get on with all 20 members of the family and, and all that type of thing. It's it's very difficult. It's something that we have all through his life, isn't it? From when we go to school, we'll put in a class of 30 people and you have to manage and learn to manage the personalities and things like that. Um, but fr- from a manager, maybe a captain's point of view as well, it's important that, that that's understood. You don't have to get on with everybody, but you have a job to do. And, and one of the big things that I saw in this regard was uh, it was the New Zealand rugby team who their way of kind of dealing with that change you know, was that everybody had a responsibility. Every single person in that dressing room had a responsibility, whether it was to be giving out technical information, tactical information, whatever, or it might be emptying the bins, it might be putting some ice in the water bottles, but that was your job. You had a system to do that. And there was an element that everybody regardless of their relationships with each other, had a good understanding that they were cogs in the same machine and that you don't necessarily have to get on with everybody, but you are part of a collective, but every single member of that collective is has a responsibility, but is also respected within that as well. You've got your job to do, and your job is as important as anybody else's job. So in that respect having that culture of that togetherness, regardless of the personalities within that, is very important. But when it comes to dealing with those conflicts, for me, and there's again, there's no right or wrong answers to this, is that for me, it is dealing with it immediately and and coming to, to the conclusions or compromises immediately. It, it, once those things are allowed to fester, that's when things turn bad. And that's in my experience. People will have different experiences to that. But in my experience, those knowing your worth within that, but also knowing that you can be different to the next person and that's all right, is essential for me. And I guess that touches upon what you mentioned earlier about sometimes if people are empathetic and you know they are more likely to let things slide early on because you, oh, I'm not going to get too involved in that because it's you know it's it's just a little thing it's not you know but that is where you need to be assertive rather than just say right it i don't want to hear about it and it stops now whatever it is it stops now because of x y and z you know and that's you know that's where you need to sort of be a bit braver yourself as a coach i guess yeah but but i mean we we use the word well we've used the word today empathy a lot haven't we and and what do we mean by empathy um some people often get mixed up and there's a very easy mix between empathy and sympathy. Now, empathy is the ability to see something from another person's point of view. Okay, you might not understand it, you might not agree with it, but you can see things from their point of view. Sympathy is when you feel the need to resolve that. So if you're, if I don't pick you for the team and, and you're upset about that, then my, the empathy in me would say, I understand how you feel like that, and this is what I need you to do to get there. Sympathy is, all right, actually, they're really upset and I need to do some, I need to resolve that upset by making a promise such as, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll get you in the team in the next three games. Two very, very different things. Empathy is just understanding things from another person's point of view. And then this is where we get back to the emotional intelligence. It's how you adapt your approach and how you can change, sometimes at the, uh, the, the click of a switch, to change your approach or the way that you work with somebody as the situation or environment suggests it's the a lack of emotional intelligence would be the inability 
to be able to do that. We always do things this way. Therefore, that's how we're doing them. Now, there's never been a better time from a psychological perspective, and I say that very broadly, than to look at this because we, we've just had COVID. And, and, and a few years ago, people went and had their daily lives. They went home from football, had their daily lives, and did whatever they did in life. However, the last two years, there's a lot of trauma in the world. And so the ability to adapt to that is has never been more important because more than ever, I think we all realise, you do not know what's going on in people's lives more than ever. The, the whole country is, is suffering from something that we would call adjustment syndrome, where we're kind of, we were back in the real world and things are different, things feel a little bit more unsafe because suddenly there's this thing that's on the news constantly that was making people that we know, love, work with, respect, ill and dying. And we've come out of that and it's still happening, but we've got to adjust to the, to the new world. So there's never been more of a, a stranger time and perhaps never been more of a more important time to understand the effect that outside life has on people and the ability to adapt to a situation and to deal with a situation empathetically or understandingly or whatever. It's just never been as important as it is now. And finally, I just wanted to talk about something which at grassroots level, particularly at youth level, may seem, as you get down the age groups, um, not as important as when you get up to the professional level. But that's that's team talks, both before and, and during the game, you know, halftime or whatever. Um, but I wanted to look at it from a psychological perspective. You know, we media shorthand and commentators like to say, oh, this, you know, this is the most important, you know, team talk of that manager's season or whatever. Um, but is are actually the most important conversations the ones you have in the week building up to that game, if you like? Is there very little from a psychological point of view? Yes, obviously tactical, you can make all your changes and everything else after. But, you know, what sort of psychology is there about what you say to players before a game or during a game or indeed after it? Um, you know, and actually, have you basically, you know, if you haven't done it right during the week, there's no going back at the weekend anyway. So you, when we talk about team talks from any, any sense, I think there's, a, there's as an important job to do, albeit very differently, a half-time team talk is as important as a weekly team talk. They've just got a different context. Um, your weekly team talk is how things you want, to, how you want things to be. And your half-time team talk is how things are and how things might need to change a little bit, whether that's carry on doing the same or we need to adapt things. Um, when we start to talk about the psychology of team talks, the the, incentive, the essential ingredient is buying and it's capturing people's attention. So again, we come back to the machine. What is my part in this? Because if I've got four defenders that stood there and we're talking about attacks and, and just focusing on attacks and how good or bad they are, if you want to think like that, they're, they're, they switch off and they can't recover themselves later on. So the, the first thing that I ever do on a team talk, and this is just the way that I do it, I don't give my opinion, I ask questions. And they all, I've created the environment now where players expect that. So I just, the first question I ask is, so what's happening? And I get a plethora of replies. Everybody, I've got an instant buy-in because everybody's as important immediately. Like my, my opinion is important and I take every opinion on board and then I give my opinion as part of the collective. Sometimes I have to be a bit more directed and say, well, actually, this is what I've spotted and that needs to change. 
but I've already got the buy-in from the players because they've been allowed to give their opinion and 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 to put their how they feel things are going for them. If we don't do that, we go straight in and say this needs to change, that needs to change. I've not got a buy-in into that process, and it and and the psychology will suggest that if if we hear something that we're not that's not of interest to us, then we switch off pretty quick. If we feel we've got a buy-in into it or it's applicable to us, then we we will concentrate more, and that makes sense, doesn't it? That just that makes logical sense that that we would do that. And there's also now there's a bit of a hidden element here. You've got to be very careful with this. That people will listen to messages based on fear and stability. So if there is a, an element of fear, then it, it, it's you will listen and take the information in more. Now that doesn't mean that you go into a change room and say, right, okay, there. There will be bad things happens here if you don't perform in this second half. But we have to, what, what, what do I mean by fear? Is that fear in a football match is the opposition will score goals against us. So we have to add in kind of the consequences of, of not doing what we spot or changing on the pitch will contribute to if we need to do this or, or this is what I would like us to do. Because what I can see is that if we don't do that, this is going to happen. The opposition will score goals. That's the fear element that's coming to it. Think, yeah, I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to listen a little bit more intently and take the information in a little bit more sort of soundly, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. So I'm just, I did say I had to, those last two questions, but just one, one more, really. I, I imagine that not a lot of the emotional intelligence stuff is is incorporated within within coaching courses. Um, so what can, what do you advise coaches to do to you know, what resources do they need? Obviously, there's your, 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 your company offers services, but what resources should they look at? What, how should they look at themselves to try and improve their own emotional intelligence? And the big thing for me, and it's the big thing with players, coaches, managers, everybody working in the game, understand yourself. Learn to understand yourself. If you want to do some research, I would research executive functioning. And what that means for you. What type of person are you? Now, it doesn't mean going online and paying money to do an assessment to, to get a score or anything like that. But a basic executive, just look at what executive functioning means and where you fit in that. I think the biggest opportunities that any of us have is understanding ourselves. We, we often go and look for answers, don't we? We say, oh, I want the perfect coaching system. I want the perfect analysis system. I want this or that because that will make me a better coach. Nothing makes you a better coach than not only self-reflection, but self-exploration to know, well, what am I? What type of person am I? I can't change who I am, but I want to understand who I am. And once you start to do that, you can start to adapt. There, there are numerous studies now around, uh, they're more popular than ever, but we're just starting to get into this emotional intelligence and football. So uh, you, you can certainly go on Google Scholar and find, and just put football emotional intelligence as a search, and you'll find many, many studies, um, which I like to keep on top of the research. Um, and, and there will be things in there, and you don't have to read full studies; just read the conclusions if you like. But uh, but there is more and more out there to to discuss such things. And when we talk about sports psychology, very important to remember: it, this is not a system I have to follow. This should be a self-investigation where I want to know myself. I can't change myself if I don't know myself. I can't adapt if I don't know me. 
And I would say that's the biggest advice I have for any coach or anybody who wants to improve themselves in that manner. That was the voice of John Cottrell Bolsover. Thanks to him for his time and insight. And just as importantly, thanks to you as well for listening. Don't forget, you can get the uh, Soccer Coach Weekly magazine direct to your inbox every Friday. Subscribe via our website, soccercoachweekly.net, where you can also find practice plans, advice, interviews, and much, much more. Uh, I'm Andrew Rayburn. Thanks again for listening. Join us once more here on the Soccer Coach Weekly podcast. Podcast.